Hey everyone, welcome to the weekend edition of the Goody Reader Radio Show. My name is Michael, and of course I'm joined every weekend by staff writer and editor of the website, Mercy Pilkington. Mercy, how are you? I'm doing great, how are you? I'm doing quite fine, thank you. So, on the show today we're going to talk about, our feature stories about indie authors. And uh, we're going to talk about a lot of them hating on the Authors Guild and kind of going their own routes to self-publish. But before we get into that, I want to talk about a few of the top stories of the week. And one story, Mercy, you're quite familiar with is the Executive Exodus in the Nook Division at Barnes & Noble. I am. We're, we're seeing some of the, the rumors circulating that these executives are jumping ship. Um, I think it's a little too early in the game to think that's what's going on. So, and, you know, it's easy to assume that that's the reason, that there's problems in the Nook division. But at the same time, these some of these people are the ones who've been there since the beginning and helped grow the platform. And maybe they're ready to move on and, you know, try out something new, do something new. It could be a change in the direction that Nook is planning to go. But this is an exciting time for Nook. They've, you know, it's been a while ago, but they were talking about rolling out 10 countries in 12 months. And they are working towards that direction. They've got some readership in Australia, and there's a lot happening with the Nook app, even if there's no dedicated Nook devices on those on those markets. So I think it's a little too early to assume that this is a bad thing for Barnes & Noble, or that this is a sign of doom to come. Well, friend of the website, Jim Hilt, uh, who is the head of the ebook division, he has left. And mm -hmm. also... Bill Saperstein is no longer with the company, and Bill was instrumental in basically getting the hardware off the ground. So the original uh, Nook e-readers, then the Nook tablets, and also the head of Nook Press has also left. And mm -hmm. these people are being supplanted by other people, but you know you're losing the people that basically formulated the ebook system formulated the self-publishing system and formulated the hardware so you're losing the people that basically launched all of this and you know at the time the nook simple touches the e-readers they were very successful uh their mm -hmm. first tablet or two also very successful and barnes noble does sell a lot of ebooks but they've kind of cumulatively lost market share to kobo and to of course amazon and other companies like that it just doesn't if you look at really 2013 nook really didn't have uh, a cohesive digital strategy they had a new ceo they basically flip-flopped on, okay, we're getting out of hardware completely. Oh, and then in the next uh, investor's call, they were like, okay, you know, we were just kidding. We're going to stick with hardware. And they ended up releasing a new e-reader uh, towards the end of the year. So, right. you know, if you look at the top down, they don't even have a strategy anymore in terms of what they want to do. I mean, if they're telling the investors that we're getting out of it, and then a few months later, they're telling the investors, oh, we reevaluated things. We're going to continue status quo. I mean, that does not bode very well because the leadership is just very uncertain on what they want to do. Right. And and I see that. And, you know, I sat down with one of the vice presidents in October. And the first thing, of course, I wanted to ask was, you know, 
what's going on with Nook? Because we keep hearing, you know, that the Nook division's kind of fading, and and we're hearing from some leadership that they're, you know, thinking about selling off the Nook division, doing away with it. And uh, the vice president said, well, you know, that's why that person's no longer with us. <laughs> so, uh, referring, of course, to the CEO leaving. Um, I think the time to worry would be when when you see executives leaving and not being replaced. And of course, we're not seeing that. We're seeing that these jobs are being filled. So like I said, I hope it's still an optimistic thing. You know, it does look kind of odd to lose so many people involved in some, you know, similar aspects of the company. But, you know, at the same time, some of them have been doing this from the very beginning. And I think, you know, one of the things that was a constant theme at Digital Book World earlier this month was that we are just on the beginning of the digital revolution. So whether it was mutual or whether these people left the company to go try out new ventures or whether Barnes & Noble said, you know what, we need some fresh blood in here, you know, either way, um, for whatever the reason. The time to worry is when we're not seeing growth, when you're not releasing a new device in the fall, for example, or you're not expanding into those other countries like you originally planned. So once they start holding still, that's the time to worry. So I hope this is a, a still a good sign for Barnes & Noble. Okay. As we know... EPUB and PDF files are two of the most popular formats around. Most authors, when they're writing an ebook, they do it in EPUB. Uh, Kobo, Barnes & Noble, almost every single ebook reseller but Amazon uses EPUB or PDF as their main ebook format. Adobe has actually just released new encryption for EPUB that they say that it's their most secure format ever ever and they're really trying hard to combat piracy if you want to buy a book and then strip away the encryption so you could uh, distribute it illegally or you could break the licensing agreement by saying you know I'm claiming ownership over this title you only have to google for it you can find one click tools that will you know on bulk strip away the digital rights management on every one of your books. I mean, it does not take a rocket scientist and most of these tools are designed for the lowest common denominator. So Adobe has known this and they've really worked hard with their partners such as Sony and other companies like that to formulate a better encryption strategy. Uh, Adobe says this time they're not going to be releasing the source code at all. So even to companies like Sony, they're not distributed in the source code. So it's really the source code that really will allow people to reverse engineer everything. Um, it's the internet. It really won't be that long before tools are developed anyways. But you may have noticed that if you fired up Adobe Digital Editions lately that you may get a 3.0 update. Uh, more publisher tools have also been updated. We'll continue to follow this story. But I think it's very interesting that Adobe is trying to make their EPUB platform a little bit more secure. Even though EPUB is popular, Barnes Noble and Kobo actually use their own type of digital rights management uh, called Schema. So they don't actually use the stock Adobe digital rights management. And if you look at how well Amazon, Barnes Noble and Kobo do, the companies that actually use Adobe's digital rights management to take advantage of this added security makes up less than 5% of the total book selling industry globally. Um, one other uh, bit of news is um, iTunes U. So if you are into digital textbooks and you have an iPad or an iPhone, uh, they've expanded into 50 new countries, mainly in Latin America, Europe, and um, 
Asia. So you'll actually be able to download these enhanced eBooks um, and textbooks and use iBooks in order to read them. If you're not too familiar with Apple's digital textbooks, most of them are made with iBooks author, which really allows for multimedia elements. So uh, live video, audio, uh, Google Maps, any type of sort of these multimedia elements. So it's perfect for like biology textbooks, books on astronomy because you can actually see planets animating. You can click on a planet and see details on its core and everything like that. So I think it's cool. And so Apple is pretty well one of the leaders now in textbook distribution. Uh, Amazon, Google, companies like that sell textbooks, but their market is really limited to the United States and perhaps the UK. They don't really have a, a massive presence um, outside of North America. So Mercy, you've written an article um, and uh, it has to do with the Authors Guild, Jennifer Weiner, Hugh Howey. What do you know? Interestingly, all at once, it felt like you know, the, the world of the internet came crashing down in terms of how authors perceived the publishing industry. So all at once, this week, we had a great article um, by Jesse Barron for Harper's Magazine. We had uh, Hugh Howey coming out with a scathing blog post. And then Brenna Aubrey also uh, releasing, not only re-releasing a blog post she's had explaining why she turned down a publishing contract from a major publisher, but also kind of sticking it to her naysayers. So it's very interesting that all at once these authors have come, you know, independently come together and said, you know, here's how we feel about the industry as it stands right now. The first and probably most entertaining of these posts was Hugh Howey's and a, a post that he put up yesterday called Bread and Roses, where he takes open stabs at the Authors Guild and its leader, Scott Turow, and basically uh, makes the point that the Authors Guild is supposed to be working for writers and readers, and instead it's completely in bed with the publishing industry. Um, to the point that the Authors Guild came out in favor of the price-fixing scandal that happened with Apple um, and that it's not going after publishing houses for offering these really brutal contracts to authors, even in light of one of the big five publishers announcing that they make more off an ebook sale than a hardcover sale and that the author makes less. So an author actually makes more through their typical contract. Um, in terms of royalty percentage when someone buys the hardcover than the ebook. And the reason for that is they're selling far more ebooks than hardcovers. And so they're they're basically ripping off the author because people are reading more ebooks. Um, the the post itself is fascinating and you can find it at HughHowie.com. It was the one he posted January twenty-fourth, in which he lists in, in great detail his um, seven or eight different concepts that he would love to see the Authors Guild take on and actually start fighting for authors. So he holds nothing back in his criticism of this organization. What is interesting to me is self-published authors cannot even get into the organization through typical membership. Um, you have to be published by a, a, a quote, established publishing house in the U.S. Um, any self-published author who can make $5,000 in royalties or more in an 18-month period Period, can be a member for which they get to pay $90 a year to be a member. Um, but as we know from the, the study released at Digital Book World, 87% of self-published authors don't even make $1,000 a year, let alone $5,000. So basically he's pointing out the flaws in a, in a club that none of us really needs and is not really welcome in. 
Um, and that same exact tone came through in the Harper's piece in talking about romance author Jennifer Weiner, who initially, as a self-published author who was doing quite well with a strong fan base and promoting her own works, um, she was very vocal about the fact that she, she and many other self-published authors were excluded still, so they were not welcome on the New York Times book review or different interview opportunities and things like the Authors Guild because of that stigmatizing label of self-published. And finally, she you know, took the course of, you know, I don't need you. Say what you want. I don't care if you let me in your organizations or your clubs. I don't care if you put my name on things. I'm doing well. My fans are happy. I love what I'm doing, and I'm making a living doing it. So um, the, the point of the Harper's piece was that the publishing industry really has got to open its eyes and start noticing that more and more authors are turning their backs, and they are making not only a name for themselves, but they're also you know, quite doing quite well in terms of quitting their jobs and being full-time writers without the help of the industry. So um, Baron actually brings up the point towards the end there that the industry needs to be afraid of these authors because they are becoming the role model for how to do it right. And so we're, we're going to get to the point where authors don't even bother querying a publisher before deciding to self-publish. We find that a lot. In fact, Goody Reader interviewed two um, Spotlight authors from Create Space this weekend, neither one of them had queried the traditional industry before deciding to self-publish their books. And both of them are now full-time stay-at-home writers who've quit their jobs. One of them who's quit his job as a pharmaceutical sales rep <laughs> because he's making enough money to be able to stay home and write instead of go to a day job. The so final one, I sorry. actually kind of have a question um, about, yeah. um, you know, Howie and, and Wiener and stuff like that. I mean, uh, Jennifer Wiener you know, uh, cut her teeth in, in traditional publishing. I mean, she's a fairly famous romance author, you mm -hmm. know, she's, she's sold a lot of books. If you go to any major bookstore, whenever she has a new, uh, title out, I mean, it's front and center, you know, so people mm -hmm. can purchase it. Um, Howie more or less cut his teeth in, in self-publishing and he really mm -hmm. only has one book that actually has been traditionally published and most bookstores, you would be really hard pressed to actually find it. So, if they're sort of cutting out, um, you know, if they're not happy with the Authors Guild, if they're not happy with publishing books with established publishing companies, what happens to the entire pipeline of, of, of people that depended on that author, like their agent, like their editor, their, their copywriter, their cover art designer? I mean, what happens to all of them? Well, the interesting thing, and this actually comes to the third author who released some information this weekend, those side people are going to be fine because there is work to be had unless they insist on working strictly in a traditional publishing house. If they're willing to work with self-published authors, they're going to end up fine because one of the things that we're seeing more and more is we are seeing a trend of authors taking it upon themselves to self-police the self-publishing industry and saying, if you don't have an editor, if you didn't get a great cover, you don't deserve to be here because this is not just something anybody can do and slap up on an ebook. You need to take this seriously. And so there is plenty of work to be had for people with reasonable rates who are approachable, who will work with an author. Um, you do mention the agents, and those are people that I've had a lot of questions about. I've done some, some interviews very recently trying to compile what we think is going to happen to the agents. From what I'm hearing and from what I'm understanding, I see their role shifting. Uh, for example, Hugh Howie has an agent, Kristen Nelson, and she's done a tremendous job for him. She helped him broker the different things that have gone along with taking his book out of being strictly ebooks. Um, his his wool 
series, excuse me, the Silo Saga, all three of those titles are actually now in print where they were not when he was only self-published. Um, he could have put them in print through Create Space, but that's just not, he didn't need to do it basically because as a science fiction series, you know, a lot of the science fiction fans were the first to adopt digital reading because it went along with their, their adoption of technology across the board. Um, so he was doing quite well, and then Simon & Schuster came along with the print-only rights that she helped broker. Um, she's also helping him broker the, the movie deal, which is kind of in limbo for just a second, but it has been optioned by Ridley Scott and 20th Century Fox. And so in that case, he needs an agent. You know, he's got, he needs someone who knows the ins and outs of negotiating these things, what he's entitled to, what he's not, for example. Um, but a typical self-published author who's doing mid-level sales, who's just, you know, content with their sales, may not need that agent unless they're ready to go on to a higher step. Um, but Brenna Aubrey was uh, the third author this weekend who posted a very detailed blog post on her site, brennaaubrey.net, in which she not only tells us exactly how much she spent, almost to the penny, to put out her title, but also shows screenshots of her sales reports for the first month. So in the first month of sales, after turning down $120,000 in advance for a three-book deal from a major publisher, um, something that got her ridiculed at best and completely muckraked at worst, um, she actually demonstrates that she not only made back all of the money she invested in, in editing, cover design, promotion, things like that, but she actually has a profit this month, in the first month alone, of more than $16,000. So she seems to be doing quite well for herself, and sure, that could level off. That might never total that $120,000, but you know it's always a gamble, and at well, least it's a gamble I mean she's happy with. I, I, mm -hmm. I wrote an article fairly recently about author advances and the, the average first-time author will likely see between a five and $10,000 advance. And what mm -hmm. a lot of authors don't know is that when you get an advance and your book sells, you don't actually make money until your advance is actually paid off. So right. you, despite the fact you may get a $160,000 advance, if your book doesn't sell that much, then you mm -hmm. don't actually make anything from the book. You just keep right. the advance money. So it's sort of a double-edged sword, you know, with, with these advances where the larger advance that you get, it's chances are... The more you are, have to sell. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then you have right. to sort of market the book on your own for, you know, basically for free just to help try to, like, actually make a few dollars from that title. Right. I mean, best-selling authors and authors with a name don't really have to worry about it. But, you know, if you're a first-time author and you're getting a $15,000 advance, chances mm -hmm. are you're not going to make that money back. And if you don't make your advance money back, chances are you won't get a second book by that same publisher. So you have to be right. very careful about that. One thing that you mentioned that I actually found very interesting was um, the successful indie authors policing. And mm -hmm. <laughs> that seems to be a full-time job because I look at Smashwords on the very, you know, I, I've looked at every title on the Smashwords homepage riddled with mistakes, you know, right. non-working uh table of contents, uh, cover art that was just downloaded from the internet that belongs to another author, um, mm -hmm. not to mention the um, the not-so-great content. 
So right, if you're policing indie authors, you're going to be opening up yourself to like a million indie authors blasting you for like, who do you think you are trying to police us? We don't need policing. (laughs) And then, you know, you'll have the the pitchfork indie author mob coming after you. Well, when I say policing, I don't don't necessarily mean contacting authors, you know, book by book and telling them how bad their book sucks. What I'm talking about is the 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 very open nature of you have to get an editor, you have to get a, a formatter, you have to get a cover artist, even down to what do you have to rank in order of importance. Editing is above and beyond. You've got to get an editor. Um, it would be nice if you had a great cover, you know, because that's going to help you sell. Formatting, you know, I've actually seen reviews where people have said, gosh, it was a great book, if I, but I couldn't really read it. The formatting was off, you know. And so, and beyond that, in self-publishing, you can take it down and fix it. If you get that review, if you didn't realize that your book does not come through perfectly on, you know, for example, a Nook, because you wrote it and sent it through you know, from a, a distributor, then you can take it down and fix it, which is not going to happen with a traditionally published book. Um, I, so I'm, I guess I'm saying more in terms of attitudes about how you have to take this seriously. It is an investment that you're going to have to work to make back. It's no longer a matter of being Amanda Hawking sitting in her trailer at 26 years old and just slapping another book up on Kindle every week. You know, we, we know that she was a very talented writer and that she did work hard at this but I think people saw her success and started just throwing random titles around hoping to cash in you know and that's not exactly how it's supposed to work Um, but one thing that Brenna does go into great detail about is how that advance gets broken down so you're right you don't make any sales until after the, the threshold of the royalty has been met but in her first blog post on this one that she posted on the 12th this month where she kind of explains um, what happened you know with her first month of sales after rejecting the, the advance so the hundred and twenty thousand dollars was for the three books so it was like forty thousand per book um, of course fifteen percent goes to her agent so it says you know in her post that she would have received only eighty percent eighty five percent excuse me of that of sixty thousand of it because she gets half so she does not get the entire 120000 up front just for signing the contract. So she gets half of that amount, of which 15% goes to her agent. Then the remaining half, which still she does have to share with her agent, gets paid out in six payments after she first delivers the manuscript and then when it's published, you know, actually published. And so as we're talking about three books, there are actually going to be six remaining payments. So I hate to say it's only $10,000, but what she was looking at was sharing $60,000 with an agent. And then over the course of the next life of the contract could have been four years getting six payments of $10,000. So again, that's not money that someone's going to quit their day job on. Yeah, it's hard to make mortgage payments like that. Right. (laughs) Right. Faster, honey. (laughs) we got to buy groceries this week. You can't do that. And so I think a lot of people hear just the surface of a contract and they don't really see how it actually plays out. Um, So, And of course, knowing that those six payments of $10,000 are not entirely hers either. She shares 15% with her agent. So... Uh, beyond that, once the, the money is recovered and she is earning royalties, her deal was going to be 7% on print books and 25% on ebooks. So, still not the terms that Amazon gives to a self published author. And 
course, Nook and Kobo and other other platforms as well. Um, they give 70% on an ebook, not 25. Um, that 25% was also going to be on net. So once Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kobo, whomever takes their distribution percentage of 30%, then the publisher is going to give her 75%. I'm sorry, they're going to keep 75% of the remaining 30, 70%. So it's not quite the money it sounds like. <laughs> and so she decided to go it alone and see you know, see how she could do with it. Uh, one of the most important things she explains is that, you know, sitting down, looking at a contract where they say, we're going to give you $120,000 to write three books, and then we're going to start paying you a little more too. That told her how much that book was worth, that they were willing to do that. Yeah. I have personally seen $300 royalty checks. I've received uh, royalty uh, checks. I actually, I don't think I've ever even seen a royalty check. I'm sorry, I meant advance. I'm so sorry, I misspoke. I've seen $300 advance checks where that's all the publisher felt they could risk on this title. (laughs) And so when she saw $120,000 as their proposed advance, it kind of put in her mind, you know, they're willing to take a risk on this because they think it's marketable and they think it's worthy. So uh, you said something interesting about even if she had taken the deal, she would still have to promote that book. And she would do it not earning royalties. She yeah. would do it, trying to get the book sales up enough to give her future royalties. And, so I mean, she has a name, so it's it's easier for her to promote it. She already has a blog and you know an mm-hmm. established fan base and, and marketing channels. But right. you look at sort of indie authors without a name; they try to promote their book, and in some ways, they're not promoting the book uh, in the most ethical manner. Uh, I wrote an article. I think on January 21st about how indie authors, uh, for the most part, have resorted to spamming Twitter and artificially getting terms to to trend and then taking advantage of those trending terms. So Mm -hmm. on the 21st, Kindle was trending. And, you know, this is Amazon's famous e-reader or tablet. You would figure that if you were to click on the hashtag, it would maybe talk about maybe an update to uh, their, uh, you know, their app for iOS, or maybe there's a new model that was just announced, or maybe some, a lot of people uh, had, you know, maybe got a Kindle on sale and everyone's like, you know, Kindle on sale only, you know, $50, you know, click here. But no, you click on the Kindle hashtag and it was like, last chance to buy my book today, free book on Kindle, you know, uh, you know, people just spamming Twitter about, you know, hashtag buy my book that are using mm-hmm. these popular terms. And if you click on them, you actually know, don't see any quality content. You just see like, I saw at least 10,000 authors that were spamming Twitter. Um, oh, I mean, yeah. you know, it was just page after page after page after page of just like, you know, free buy my book, hashtag Kindle, hashtag EPUB, hashtag e-reader. And it's, you know, mm-hmm. that, for one, I mean, Twitter's not a sales channel. It's not no. a vehicle to sell. <laughs> but it looks like indie authors just don't know any better. They don't. And, yeah, it's funny that now the the information about the hashtag, that's very new. Uh, I can tell you one thing it might be related to. It's a very similar 
underhanded tactic. But the spamming on Twitter has been happening basically since self-publishing started. Um, and it's, it's actually quite disgusting. And the worst thing about it is it's completely ineffective. And this was information that came at last year's Tools of Change conference. So, you know, the conference, that of course, is, is no longer taking place. Um, Otis Chandler got up and gave a presentation on a survey that had been done on two specific books among Goodreads readers, basically asking, how did you learn about this book? What made you decide, I want, I'm interested in it, I want to read it, you know, and to buy it, ultimately? Twitter and Facebook came in dead last, including pushing your shopping cart past the book by mistake in Walmart. <laughs> so <laughs> you were more likely to buy the book having seen it on the store of a retail shelf, not a bookstore, um, than you were based on a recommendation on Twitter or, good, or Facebook. And unfortunately, authors don't know that. They have not gotten that through their heads beyond the fact that the, like you said, the hashtag EPUB, hashtag e-reader, hashtag free, you know, it's annoying. It does, it's not engaged. It's not great content. And this is something, again, that self-published authors are kind of policing in some regard. There's a lot of articles about there, about that. There are whole forums about stop doing this. It doesn't work. It makes you look stupid. And it's going to cost you followers. Now, the information about grabbing trending hashtags and throwing them in there just to kind of sneak your book in front of people who do care about the Seattle Seahawks, for example, you know, if I just grab a random trending hashtag, um, that's even more underhanded in my book. But, um, one of the things that came about very recently was it all happened as, as a result of finding the erotica titles in divisions of the retail websites where they did not belong, which I think the companies are still trying to get to the bottom of. Some of it seemed to have been a metadata glitch. Some of it seems to have been completely intentional on the part of people who wanted these books in front of young readers. So in that whole crackdown on, on the erotica ebooks. Um, Amazon especially, but other companies, started really enforcing one of the existing terms of service, which was you could not use the title of another book in your keywords. And so authors have been found adding Hunger Games in their keyword <laughs> to get people searching for the Hunger Games books to accidentally find their book and right. decide so to at least you, click you, on you it. click on the Hunger Games, you'll get similar books, you know. And, right, and, and, but especially if you type on it. Yeah, if you type in the title, if you go specifically to get the Hunger Games book, yeah, then you'll accidentally see this random book about something else, you know, your virus killing the world or something. So it's, it's sneaky and it's underhanded, and it leaves a bad taste in readers' mouths well, as they you, sit there. Do you mm -hmm. think that, you know, things like spamming Twitter and Facebook, do you think that this adds to the negative stigma that indie authors face? Because you mentioned um, before we started the show about um, a daughter of a famous president that was on a radio show with a, a traditionally published book, and then she went back to the same radio show with a self-published book, and they said, we simply can't bring you on a show with a self-published title. Right. Absolutely. And that was Patty Davis, who's interviewed with us several times about her really good books. Uh, I think she's up to 10 different novels now, two of them self-published, or uh, 10 titles, excuse me. Um, but I think it does. I think this contributes to it. But more importantly, I think it's one of the things that hurts more it hurts the authors more in terms of readers' perceptions. I can care less if some 
you know, some news outlet wants to talk about my book. I, and I think most authors feel that way. I think it's kind of annoying in the back of our minds, but it doesn't keep us awake at night. What should be keeping us awake at night is readers having a nasty perception of self-published authors because of this kind of behavior. And so basically I tell authors, if Stephen King wouldn't do it on Twitter, you don't do it on Twitter. So you don't find successful, best-selling authors self-published or traditionally published, either one. You don't find them behaving this way on Twitter, and I don't know who told these people it's effective or that it's a good idea. Um, things like the auto DM, where God forbid I follow someone, I click the button and follow, and I get this auto DM back telling me to go follow his blog, find him on Facebook, buy his book, you know. I'm like, then there I have an unfollow button <laughs> right next to it. You yeah. Know? It almost seems like we should write an article about... Uh... Or a series of article on, um, you know, the, the best and you know the best best practices to to right. promote your book as a, as a first time author, because right. it just it seems like that there's a lot of uh, misperceptions or there there's a lot of there's a lot of things that authors are doing because they're hearing that you know Twitter's very popular, so I gotta promote yeah. my book on Twitter, or you know, uh, a lot of people are on Facebook, I have to use Facebook to just promote my book, you know, Ugh, and, and know. just like they don't know any better, they just hear that these social media channels have a lot of users, so by de facto, that they, you know, if they spend all their time on Twitter saying buy my book, then they might get some book sales out of it, but that's really not the case. No, and even worse, they're scheduling it. They're not talking to someone. If I saw a tweet, for example, about legal marijuana in Colorado, I could talk to that person and say, hey, I wrote a book about that. It's called this, if you care. They're not even doing that. They are scheduling these tweets to go out every hour on the hour, for example, seven days a week. So they can sit down once a month and schedule 30 days worth of annoying buy my book tweets. So they're not even engaging with people. Yeah. And you know, something like Facebook, Hugh Howie, I don't know how he has time to write because he's always on Facebook, but he's talking to people. He's I'm posting interesting information about his day to day life. It will contain every once in a while, oh, hey, uh, my new book is available from Kindle Worlds. I wrote it about Kurt Vonnegut, you know. Then once there's comments, then he will he'll re respond to them. He'll talk back to them. Yeah. And so it's not just a hey, look at me, I'm Hugh. You know, look at what I'm doing and look what I <laughs> look wrote so you can buy it. He's actually talking, you know, and and shares the ups and downs and goods and bads. It's not just about the book. I mean, he'll he's very humble about criticism. That he'll you know he'll put up there. Hey, gotta get dogged today by this person who said this, you know. And, uh, but, but then he'll respond when people comment on it. So he's actually engaging, which is a great tool. You can do that on Twitter, but it has to be live and genuine. And you have to be talking to these people if you want them to do something for you. Yeah, the only authors I follow on Twitter are the ones that really never talk about their books. They talk, mm -hmm. you know, they retweet funny things. Uh, I, I remember I, uh, I follow William Gibson, who's uh, a sci-fi writer. He wrote Neuromancer and, you know, all of these great books. And, you know, an example of his tweet is he retweeted something that the Vancouver Police Department tweeted out about how a guy with a for fake afro and fake mustache just <laughs> robbed a gas station and he's like uh, he's in a motorcycle sidecar and they, they like they're like last seen on this street and, you know things like that make me laugh and it, you know, exactly. it makes me read their tweets because you know they do that occasionally but you know they talk about um you know 
cool new design, uh, you know, uh, architectural designs in China and they'll post like a picture and it's right. like, wow, I've never seen anything like that before. Or, you know, they'll, they'll talk about compelling things. And, and right. the reason why I follow them is because reading their tweets is genuinely interesting. And mm -hmm. if you, you know, if you, you know, do an at or if you do a DM, they'll reply to you. And right. a lot of these first time authors or authors that maybe have written a few books, you know, they're using Hot Hootsuite to automate their tweets and they're never checking their Twitter to see if people are responding or maybe if someone's asked them a question. It's just like, buy my book, buy my book, buy my book, buy my book with like nothing mm -hmm. actual interesting to say about them. So in effect, they're just, they're basically mindless drones or robots. Well, they are exactly because because they're using a scheduling bot to do it for them. Um, and even worse, they're actually shooting themselves in the foot. It's not just that it's ineffective. It's actually damaging their writing career because people are looking at us going, what a jerk. You know, how about you talk about something else for a change, you know, besides yourself and how great you are. Um, this is right up there, by the way, with the people who retweet their reviews. Well, whoop de doo Some stranger in, in Iowa thought your book was a five star. You know, why do I care? <laughs> you know, you could thank someone for a review on Twitter. Gosh, got some great reviews last night. I'm so excited. Made my day. Having coffee now or something, you know. But there's no reason to, to copy and paste it and put it back in there. So I think authors, I don't know if it's ignorance now because, like I said, there are so many articles and posts saying don't do this it doesn't work and it's going to leave a bad taste in people's mouths people who could have been enjoying your conversation and your book um you were talking about famous authors you follow i follow margaret atwood um just because she was involved in a twitter game one day you know these games where you have a, have a hashtag and i think this one was add a word ruin a movie you know so we were adding a one word to movie titles and really changing the meaning of it she was involved and she's playing along. She's in there and she's retweeting people, you know, because theirs was funny. I mean, so this is a human being who's having fun with other authors, readers, even just random people who were following the hashtag. Totally. You know? so, I, I, I hear exactly what you're saying. Like, I, I was in a Twitter contest not too long ago where people were taking popular Star Wars characters <laughs> and putting them, like, in, in other names. So uh -huh. it would be, like, famous movies, and you would sub in one word with, like, Ewoks or with, you know, <laughs> with uh, Skywalker right. or something like that. So right. it, it would be hilarious because people would think of these weird, obscure movies that each one would try to outdo the other with like right. you know taking a movie that you may not have heard of but just like throwing something out there and it would just be like everyone would be like that's awesome that's so funny and you know things like that are like they're interactive they're they they're, they're they're it's something that i remember you know i forget mm -hmm. the author's name but i remember this like four months later because it was interactive and it was fun and no one really does that that often that, exactly you know right. th those are the types of things that you you have to be engaging if you're in an author trying to make a name mm -hmm. for yourself it, it's it you're selling yourself you know, um, you're not selling the book. It, you're you're right. selling yourself as like an author, as an individual, as a creative mind, as somebody that has a, an opinion worth listening to. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And yeah, I remember the one 
Margaret Atwood retweeted of mine because I was so excited. Oh my gosh, Margaret Atwood retweeted me, <laughs> you know, and you're right. So it sticks out and it stays with you. Um, I may not remember six other ones I saw that day, but I'm going to remember that this author was involved and engaged with us. And the word that you used, interactive, that this person was talking to people on the internet, even if it was just to be stupid for an hour, you know, it was just to have fun, but she was there and she was a part of it. And so that people are going to remember that. I totally agree. So we've talked, I think, about enough about, uh, you know, all this indie author business. But if you're listening to this show, stay tuned to our website next week. And there'll be a series of articles that Mercy and myself will uh, engage in with best practices for first-time authors or for indie self-published authors in a digital world. If you are thinking about you know, advertising yourself, or if you just haven't had any luck drawing attention to your titles, you may want to check this out. Of course, Goody Reader, all of our articles to read are free. We don't have a paywall like the New York Times or the Bookseller or any of these other sites. Uh, we'll continue to always be free, so you may want to um, educate yourself on maybe some interesting things that you could do to either build an online identity or to basically take advantage of these social media channels in the correct and right manner so you're actually more of a compelling person as opposed to just an automated automaton. So uh, without further ado, we're going to let you all go for today. Uh, but make sure to check our website, goodyreader.com, all next week for a new feature series on best practices for indie authors. Mercy, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. All right, everybody, take care.